0: Hello and welcome to the newest episode of the Minority of One podcast. The death penalty was one of the earliest issues that I took a position on. Specifically, at about age 11 or 12, I took the stance that the death penalty was always wrong after having, at around age 5, thought that China's policy of execution for killing a panda sounded reasonable. I also started getting into Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and Chronicles of Narnia at around this age, give or take a couple years, although I became a more hardcore Harry Potter fan in my 20s than I had been as a kid. So in a sense, it only makes sense for me to do a discussion that combines these seemingly unrelated interests. What I'm going to be examining is how the issue of capital punishment is addressed In each of the three fantasy series that I have mentioned, and what each series' stance on it seems to be, that is capital punishment, not corporal punishment. But before we get started, I feel that I need to address the elephant in the room. No, I'm not talking about all the elephant paraphernalia I have in my condo. I'm talking about the fact that none of the three authors of the series, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and J.K. Rowling, are people that I'd probably get along with if I met them in real life. I have pretty major political disagreements with all of them, though it's difficult to determine what Lewis and Tolkien's views on stuff like LGBT rights would be if they were alive today. Obviously, I absolutely disavow any and all bigoted statements made by these three authors. And let me specifically state that I absolutely, unequivocally, reject J.K. Rowling's reprehensible views on trans rights. The corollary to this is that if I interpret one of these authors as expressing a view or theme in their writing that I agree with, such as a critique of capital punishment, a critique of racism, or both, this should not be read as me saying that this author is or was generally a wonderful person, nor does it mean, obviously, that I am saying that I agree with them on every other issue— I hope that those who may think I am still being too charitable to any of these authors will at least take yes for an answer. Let's start with Narnia. The Chronicles of Narnia are probably seen as the most kid-oriented of the three fantasy series that I'm looking at. It's certainly far more kid-friendly than Lord of the Rings, Most adult Narnia fans, at least anecdotally, seem to have gotten into the series as kids, whereas with Harry Potter, many of the adult fans are people who were already grown when the books came out. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone opens with a double murder of a baby's parents, and later in the text, we are shown the drinking of blood. In Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, no named characters who we like actually stay dead, So one might assume that Narnia would take the most negative attitude toward the death penalty. Quite the opposite. I'm about to argue that of the three series I'm covering here, Narnia is the one that actually leans the most pro-death penalty. To the best of my knowledge, Tolkien and Rowling never explicitly addressed capital punishment outside of their fantasies, but Lewis did. I had thought before doing this podcast that Lewis explicitly favored the death penalty. It now seems that at least by the time he died, he was more ambivalent about it than I realized. Still, unlike Tolkien and Rowling, we can safely say that he was not anti-death penalty. We can also safely say that he was open to the idea that execution was an acceptable legal punishment. The UK still had the death penalty at the time that Lewis published his writings, but it had long been controversial. At the beginning of the 1800s, England had been infamous for its long list of capital crimes, including theft of items above a certain value. But in the 1860s, the the death penalty was eliminated for most crimes besides murder, treason, violent piracy, and arson specifically in the royal dockyards. By the mid-20th century, efforts at abolition were gaining ground. In 1948, Parliament's House of Commons voted to suspend executions for murder, but they were overruled by the House of Lords. In 1961, two years before his death, Lewis wrote that he was neither for nor against the death penalty. He said, quote, I do not know whether capital punishment should or should not be abolished, for neither the natural light nor scripture nor ecclesiastical authority seems to tell me, but I am concerned about the grounds on which its abolition is being sought, end quote. In Lewis's view, God was not speaking to him about the morality of capital punishment one way or the other, and he considered the Bible ambiguous on the subject. Nor did he feel that the Church of England provided him with adequate guidance on this issue, but he was alarmed that many opponents of the death penalty were arguing that the primary purposes of the justice system— should be issues such as rehabilitation and deterrence rather than punishment. Quote, the concept of dessert, end quote, wrote Lewis, quote, is the only connecting link between punishment and justice. End quote. Dessert, spelled here with one S rather than two, refers not to the delicious sugary treats one enjoys after dinner, but rather to what an offender deserves. I'm not going to spend much time summarizing Lewis's argument or the arguments against it, because the primary focus of this podcast is how the authors address capital punishment in fantasy. But this information about Lewis's nonfiction writing helps provide context to see what views he was conveying about the death penalty in Narnia. And his view that the most important question to consider for punishments is what the offender deserves is very important because, as we'll see, Tolkien takes a very different view in Lord of the Rings. Three of the Narnia books seem to delve into Lewis's death penalty views. The first is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In this novel, one of the Pevensey kids, Edmund, meets the White Witch, who is nice to him when they first meet, but inexplicably very mean the second time. One wonders if Lewis predicted internet dating. To give the Cliff Notes version, the witch gives him a candy called Turkish Delight that is laced with magic, and she promises to make him a king as well as offering him more Turkish Delight. The goal of all of this is to try to trick him into bringing his siblings to her. This reminds me of when I got a Facebook message about the empowerment-free grant from someone pretending to be one of my former teachers. The White Witch would have been great at phishing scams, Edmund betrays his siblings, partly for some Turkish delight. Now, let me say that having seen actual Turkish delight, I'd be be tempted to betray my sister not to have to eat it. The siblings escape with some talking beavers, which, because this is a children's book from 1951, is not a double entendre, and Edmund is held hostage and almost killed by the witch. He is then rescued by some standard fantasy creatures, angels, uh, what they are is never really made clear, who bring him to Aslan the lion. Aslan, of course, is both literally and metaphorically Jesus in animal form. The witch, however, shows up and demands that Aslan hand Edmund over to her on the grounds that Aslan's father, a.k.a. God the Father, gave her the power to execute traitors. Aslan does does not contest her claim but instead of giving her Edmund back lets himself be killed instead I'm going to quote here from the most relevant part of the text quote You have a traitor there Aslan said the witch of course everyone present knew what, knew that she meant Edmund but Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through and after the talk he'd had that morning he just went on looking at Aslan it didn't seem to matter what the witch said "'Well,' said Aslan, his offense was not against you. "'Have you forgotten the deep magic?' asked the witch. "'Let us say I have forgotten it,' answered Aslan gravely. "'Tell us of this deep magic.' "'Tell you?' said the witch, her voice growing suddenly shriller. "'Tell you what is written on that very tablet of stone which stands beside us? "'Tell us what is written in letters deep as a spear is long on the trunk of the world ash tree?' tell you what is engraved on the scepter of the Emperor beyond the sea, you at least know the magic which the Emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and that for every treachery I have a right to a kill. Oh, said Mr. Beaver, so that's how you came to imagine yourself as a queen, because you were the Emperor's hangman. I see. Peace, Beaver, said Aslan with a very low growl. And so, continued the witch, That human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property. Come and take it then, said the bull, with the man's head in a great bellowing voice. Fool, said the witch, with a savage smile that was almost a snarl. Do you really think your master can rob me of my rights by mere force? He knows the deep magic better than that. He knows that unless I have blood, as the law says, all Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. It is very true, said Aslan, I do not deny it. Oh, Aslan, whispered Susan in the lion's ear, can't we, I mean, you won't, will you? Can't we do something about the deep magic? Isn't there something you can work against it? Work against the emperor's magic, said Aslan, turning to her with something like a frown on his face, and nobody ever made that suggestion to him again, end quote. The witch stabs him to death on the stone table where the law is written, but the next morning the table breaks and he comes back to life and ends up killing her. These sequences in the second and third act of the novel are mostly talked about for the clear parallel to the death and resurrection of Jesus, but it is interesting to see if we can detect Lewis's ambivalence on the death penalty from this. It can be problematic to try to extrapolate from Lewis's view about God's wrath requiring a sacrifice via Jesus' death to conclude that he favored the death penalty. Plenty of Christians who hold this basic view of the Easter story are against the death penalty. It's unlikely that Lewis's views diverged much from Tolkien's view of Jesus' death and resurrection, and as we'll see, there's evidence that Tolkien viewed capital punishment far more negatively. But the witch at this point in the story is a government leader, She's ruling Narnia as a queen, and the kind of death she was given the authority by God to inflict isn't spiritual death. It's literal, physical death in the form of execution. Mr. Beaver even uses the phrase hangman. The way that Lewis constructs the metaphor could reflect him being open to the idea that God might give earthly government authorities the right to execute criminals. There is a final aspect of this sequence, however, that at least raises questions about whether Lewis was struggling with his own doubts about capital punishment. Some readers have speculated that the stone table Aslan was originally killed on, and which has the law about traitors written into it, is a metaphor for the tablets that Moses supposedly received the Ten Commandments on. This may be more relevant to capital punishment than it appears. Under Old Testament law, the death penalty was imposed not only for murder, but also for many far more minor, quote-unquote, crimes, some of which are not even illegal in many Christian societies today. Many Christians who oppose the death penalty, while still believing everything in the Bible is infallible, believe that in the New Testament, Jesus replaced the Old Testament law and removed any need for government executions. According to the Stone Table, Stone Tablet interpretation, Lewis may have been symbolizing that the requirement for executions in both Narnia and in our world had been eliminated with Aslan's slash Jesus's sacrifice. The Horse and His Boy comes the closest of the Narnia books to taking a negative view of capital punishment, and were it not for the final novel in the series and Lewis's non-fiction writings, it might make one think that Lewis was against the death penalty. Like many of the later Narnia books, the horse and his boy is way less well-known than the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, so it's even more necessary for me to provide context. The book takes place while the Pevensey kids, Edmund, Peter, Lucy, and Susan, are ruling as kings and queens in Narnia. Susan, Peter, and Lucy are visiting a country called Calarmine, which has no relation to the Lotion, and is based on the Middle East. The Calarmine prince Rabadash has been attempting to woo Susan, and while he initially seems nice, has gradually revealed himself to be a nasty future tyrant. Susan decides to ghost him as a safety measure, and the siblings return to Narnia. Furious, Rabadash follows her all the way back to Narnia. It seems that once again, Lewis predicted the rise of online dating. Rabadash's army is defeated. The next order of business is for the good guys to decide what to do with him. The following quote is from a discussion between leaders of Narnia and Archenland, the country that's supposed to have been an ally to Narnia from the beginning and borders it to the north, but hasn't been mentioned in any of the books before, even when it would have been super relevant. Quote, After lunch, which they had on the terrace, it was cold birds and cold game pie and wine and bread and cheese, King Loon ruffled up his brow and heaved a sigh and said, Hey ho! "'We have still that sorry creature Rabidash on our hands, my friends, "'and must needs resolve what to do with him. "'Lucy was sitting on the king's right, and Erebus on his left. "'King Edmund sat at one end of the table, and the Lord Darin faced him at the other. "'Dar and Peridon and Cor and Corin were on the same side as the king. "'Your majesty would have a perfect right to strike off his head,' said Peridon, such an assault as he made puts him on a level with assassins. It is very true, said Edmund, but even a traitor may mend. I have known one that did, and he looked very thoughtful. To kill this rabidash would go near to raising war with the Tizrok, said Darren. A fig for the tis- for the Tisrock, said King Loon. His strength is in numbers, and numbers will never cross the desert. But I have no stomach for killing men, even traitors, in cold blood. To have cut his throat in battle... "'would have eased my heart mightily. "'But this is a different thing. "'By my counsel,' said Lucy, "'your majesty shall give him another trial. "'Let him go free on straight promise "'of fair dealing in the future. "'It may be that he will keep his word. "'Maybe apes will grow honest, sister,' said Edmund, "'but by the lion, if he breaks it again, "'it may be in such time and place "'that any of us could swap off his head "'in clean battle.' "'It shall be tried,' said the king.' and then to one of the attendants, send for the prisoner friend. Rabidash was brought before them in chains. To look at him anyone would have supposed that he had passed the night in a noisome dungeon without food or water, but in reality he had been shut up in quite a comfortable room and provided with an excellent supper. But as he was sulking far too furiously to touch the supper, and had spent the whole night stamping and roaring and cursing, he naturally did not now look his best. Your royal highness needs not be told, said King Loon, that by the law of nations as well as by all reasons of prudent policy, we have as good a right to your head as ever one mortal man had against another. Nevertheless, in consideration of your youth and ill-nurture, devoid of all gentileys and courtesy, which you have doubtless had in the land of slaves and tyrants, we are disposed to set you free unharmed on these conditions. First that... "'Curse you for a barbarian dog!' spluttered Rabidash. "'Do you think I will even hear your conditions? "'Fah! You talk very largely of, n- of nurture, and I know not what. It's, "'It's easy to a man in chains. Ha! Take off these vile bonds. "'Give me a sword, and let any of you who dares then debate with me.' "'Nearly all the lords sprang to their feet, and Corin shouted, "'Father, can I box him? Please?' "'Peace! Your majesties, my lords,' said King Loon. "'Have we no more gravity among us than to be so chafed by the taunt of a pajak? "'Sit down, Corin, or shalt leave this table. "'I ask your highness again to hear our conditions.' "'I hear no conditions from barbarians and sorcerers,' said Rabadash. "'Not one of you dare touch a hair on my head.' Every insult you have heaped upon me shall be paid with oceans of Narnian and Archenlandish blood. Terrible shall the vengeance of the Tisrock be, even now. But kill me, and the burnings and torturings in these northern lands shall become a tale to frighten the world a thousand years hence. Beware, beware, beware. The bolts of Tash fall from above. Does it ever get caught on a hook halfway? asked Corin. Shame, Corin, said the king. Never taunt a man save when he is stronger than you. Then as you please, oh, you foolish rabidash! Sighed Lucy. End quote. We see here that the adult heroes are reluctant to execute rabidash despite his serious crimes. They draw a distinction between killing someone on the battlefield and executing a prisoner, and they are willing to take into consideration rabidash's poor upbringing and even his youth, despite the fact that he is clearly a young man rather than a child. At the same time, Loon's intro to the offer he makes for clemency imply that Narnian and Archenland law do allow for the death penalty in extreme cases. This probably reflects Lewis's view that the death penalty might sometimes be appropriate, mixed with his own lack of a strong enthusiasm for it. The next morning, Aslan shows up. You might assume he's going to kill Rabidash, but, well, not quite. Quote, Next morning, Kor wondered why everyone at the table had risen, and was standing perfectly still, Of course he did the same himself. And then he saw the reason. Aslan was among them, though no one had seen him coming. Rabadash stared as the immense shape of the lion, paced softly in between him and his accusers. Rabadash said Aslan, take heed. Your doom is very near, but you may still avoid it. Forget your pride. What have you to be proud of? And your anger. Who has done you wrong? And accept the mercy of these good kings. Then Rabidash rolled his eyes and spread out his mouth into a horrible, long, mirthless grin like a shark and wagged his ears up and down. Anyone can learn how to do this if they take the trouble. He had always found this very effective in Calarmine. The bravest had trembled when he made these faces, and ordinary people had fallen to the floor, and sensitive people had often fainted. But what Rabidash hadn't realized is that it is very easy to frighten people who know you can have them boiled alive the moment you give the word. The grimaces didn't look at all alarming in Archenland. Indeed, Lucy only thought Rabadash was going to be sick. Demon, 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 shrieked the prince. I know you. You are the foul fiend of Narnia. You are the enemy of the gods. Learn who I am, horrible phantasm. I am descended from Tash, the inexorable, the irresistible. The curse of Tash is upon you. Lightning in the shape of scorpion shall be rained on you. The mountains of Narnia shall be ground into dust. The... "'Have a care, Rabadash,' said Aslan quietly. "'The doom is nearer now. "'It is at the door. "'It has lifted the latch. "'Let the skies fall,' shrieked Rabadash. "'Let the earth gape. "'Let blood and fire obliterate the world. "'But be sure I will never desist "'till I have dragged to my palace by her hair "'the barbarian queen, the daughter of dogs, the... "'The hour has struck,' said Aslan, "'and Rabadash saw to his supreme horror "'that everyone had begun to laugh.' They couldn't help it. Rabidash had been wagging his ears all the time, and as soon as Aslan said the hour has struck, the ears began to change. They grew longer and more pointed, and soon were covered with gray hair, and while everyone was wondering where they had seen ears like that before, Rabidash's face began to change too. It grew longer and thicker at the top, and larger-eyed, and the nose sank back into the face, or else the face swelled out and became all nose, and there was hair all over it. And his arms grew longer and came down in front of him till his hands were resting on the ground. Only they weren't hands. Now they were hooves. And he was standing on all fours. And his clothes disappeared. And everyone laughed louder and louder because they couldn't help it. For what now, had, for now what had been Rabidash was simply and unmistakably a donkey. The terrible thing was that his human speech lasted just a moment longer than his human shape, so that when he realized that the change that was coming over him, he screamed out, "'Oh, not a donkey! Mercy! If it were even a horse! Even a horse! ee haw Hee-haw!' And so the words died away into a donkey's bray. "'Now hear me, Rabidash,' said Aslan. "'Justice shall be mixed with mercy. You shall not always be an ass.'" At this, of course, the donkey twitched its ears forward, and that was also, that also was so funny that everyone laughed all the more. They tried not to, but they tried in vain. You have appealed to Tash, said Aslan, and in the temple of Tash you shall be healed. You must stand before the altar of Tash in Tashban at the great autumn feast this year. And there, in the sight of all Tashban, your ass's shape will fall from you, and all men will know you for Prince Rabidash. But as long as you live, If you ever go more than ten miles away from the great temple in Tashban, you shall instantly become again as you are now, and from that second change, there will be no return. There was a short silence, and then they all stirred and looked at one another, as if they were waking from sleep. Aslan was gone, but there was a brightness in the air and on the grass, and a joy in their hearts, which assured them that he had been no dream, and anyway, there was the donkey in front of them. King Loon was the kindest-hearted of men, and seeing his enemy in this regrettable condition, he forgot all his anger. Your Royal Highness, he said, I am true—I am most truly sorry that things have come to this extremity. Your Highness will bear witness that it was none of our doing. And, of course, we shall be delighted to provide your Highness with shipping back to Tashban for the, er, treatment which Aslan has prescribed. You shall have every comfort which your Highness's situation allows. The best of the cattle boats, the freshest carrots and thistles." But a deafening bray from the donkey and a well-aimed kick at one of the guards made it clear that these kindly offers were ungratefully received." End quote. Even here, the punishment that Aslan doles out is primarily humiliating rather than physically painful, and it certainly doesn't involve execution. It seems to vindicate the decision by the good guys to spare Rabadash's life and again might make the series seem low-key anti-death penalty, if this were the final time capital punishment was addressed in Narnia. But the last time Lewis explores this issue, albeit briefly, is fittingly in the conclusion to the series The Last Battle. Last Battle is the most controversial Narnia book among feminists because Susan is excluded from Narnia in Heaven. It is also the most controversial among fundamentalists and evangelicals because a one-off Calormene character named Emeth is included in the Narnian heaven by virtue of being a good person, despite definitely not being the Narnian equivalent of a Christian. It is also the most pro-death penalty of the books, although the issue is only touched on in a couple of short passages. For context, a talking ape named Shift has tricked a talking a talking donkey named Puzzle into impersonating Aslan, helping the Calormenes take over Narnia. The following quote is a bit of dialogue by Tyrion, one of the protagonists of the novel and the heroic last king of Narnia. Quote, "'Tyrion thought for a moment and then suddenly gave out a great laugh. "'Then he spoke, not this time in a whisper. "'By the lion,' he said, "'I am growing slow-witted. "'Meet them? Certainly we will meet them. "'We will meet anyone now. We have this ass to show them. "'Let them see the thing they have feared and bowed to. "'We can show them the truth of the ape's vile plot.' His secret's out, the tide's turned. Tomorrow we shall hang that ape on the highest tree in Narnia. No more whispering and skulking and disguises. Where are these honest dwarves? We have good news for them. End quote. Of course, Tyrion's plan to hang shift, on the highest tree in Narnia, end quote, doesn't go quite as planned, because Lewis is setting up a metaphorical version of biblical Armageddon. But both Tyrion's comment and the reaction or lack thereof that the other characters have to it is illuminating. While Tyrion is with a number of other heroic characters at the time, nobody suggests that hanging someone might be bad, or that mercy could be the better path. The specific reference to hanging also suggests that Tyrion isn't envisioning killing shift on the battlefield, but rather executing him after the battle's already been won. This is the most explicit show of support for capital punishment in the Chronicles, And the fact that The Last Battle was the final book in the series to be published suggests that at least in 1956, Lewis wasn't moving in a more anti-death penalty direction. Later in the text, Shift is killed by Tash, a Satan analog worshipped by the Calormenes, and Lucy urges compassion for a group of dwarves, who, contrary to Tyrion's hopes, weren't so good after all. Since the dwarves have killed a bunch of unnamed sentient creatures at this point, the fact that Tyrion gives in to Lucy's request to show compassion to the dwarves might be read as Lewis subtly suggesting his earlier comments about hanging were ill-considered. Quote, "'After that,' said Edmund, "'someone flung a monkey through the door, and Tash was there again. My sister is so tender-hearted she doesn't like to tell you that Tash made one peck and the monkey was gone. Serves him right,' said Eustace." "'All the same, I hope he'll disagree with Tash, too.' "'And after that,' said Edmund, "'came about a dozen dwarfs. "'And then Jill and Eustace, and last of all, yourself.' "'I hope Tash ate the dwarfs, too,' said Eustace, little swine. "'No, he didn't,' said Lucy, "'and don't be horrid. They're still here. "'In fact, you can see them from here. "'And I've tried and tried to make friends with them, "'but it's no use.' "'Friends with them?' cried Eustace, "'if you knew how these dwarfs had been behaving.' "'Oh, stop it, Eustace,' said Lucy.' Do come and see them. King Tyrion, perhaps you could do something with them. I can feel no great love for dwarfs today, said Tyrion. Yet at your asking, lady, I would do a greater thing than this, end quote. Despite this scene, however, I think reading the last battle as leaning any way other than pro-death penalty is difficult to square with the text, while Lucy is in some ways the moral center of the human characters. The overall tone of the scene is that her compassion is going a bit overboard, by being horrified at the idea of evil individuals getting what they deserve, with the male characters humoring her. I submit that analyzing three of the Narnia books, one of them being the first published, one published toward the end of the series, and one being the final published volume, that take that by analyzing all of this, the most accurate interpretation of the series is that it reflects Lewis's pro-death penalty leanings, mixed with the feelings of doubt that prevented him from taking a very staunch position.